The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. You, Kirk? Yes. What is all this? I figured we'd be spending some time together, so I moved in. I hope I'm not crowding you. What's the matter? Don't you like folks? Oh, I like them fine. But a computer takes less space. <laughs> a computer, huh? I got one of these in my office. Contains all the precedents. A synthesis of all the great legal decisions written throughout time. <laughs> I never use it. Why not? I've got my own system. Books, young man. Books, thousands of them. If time wasn't so important, I'd show you something. My library. Thousands of books. What would be the point? This is where the law is. Not in that homogenized, pasteurized, synthesized. Do you want to know the law? The ancient concepts in their own language? Learn the intent of the men who wrote them? From Moses to the tribunal of Alpha Three? Books. You have to be either an obsessive crackpot who's escaped from his keeper or a Samuel T. Cogley attorney at law. You're right on both counts. <laughs> Need a lawyer? I'm afraid so. London. It is Thursday, November 29, 2012. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. 519-661, always the number you can call to reach us to join in on the conversation. And today we have a very unique guest joining us from abroad, and this is a person who's very much into books, says he likes to read book, big books and then write small ones, eh, Robert? That's what he says. <laughs> Care to do the honors? Well, um, on the line we have Dr. Bill Warner. Dr. Warner is a Ph.D. in physics and math. Uh, university professor, businessman, applied physicist. He was a member of the technical staff in solid-state physics at the Sarnoff Princeton Laboratories in the area of integrated circuit structures. Professor at Tennessee State University in the engineering school, and he's on the line with us today from Nashville. Good day, Dr. Warner. Good morning, sir. Uh, now, Bob and I met you on the weekend. On Sunday, we were all in Toronto, and you gave a presentation to a select group of people, which fascinated us. I had the opportunity to sit down and interview you on video, which we'll yes. see later. Um, people can uh, go to our website, um, perhaps in the next coming weeks, and find that there. And you had some fascinating things to say, and it all stemmed from that pivotal event 9-11. Can you tell us about what happened on that day and what got you going into the area that you are now going? Well, before 9-11, I had uh, always been fascinated by the effects of religion on history. Uh, so I have also just been, I'm fascinated by religious text. So between the study of religion and history and religious text, uh, I had spent a lifetime reading uh, Hindu source text, Buddhist source text. Now, you notice I say source text. I, I very much that noticed that. That is the that. original <laughs> hardcore data, uh, not comments on it. 
for instance, I have studied Torah at an Orthodox synagogue. Again, the purpose here, if I'm going to learn about Judaism, I want to go to the root cause, in this case, the Torah. So anyway, this was, uh, I had already read the uh, Quran uh, and had already read the life of Muhammad. So uh, on 9-11, and I was, I'm a woodworker, and I was just working around, working on wood as I like to do. And uh, a friend said, there's just been an airplane hit the World Trade Tower. So I went and turned on the TV, and uh, when I saw the second plane hit the second tower, I stood up and said, it is jihad, Islam is here, turned off the television set, and in that moment knew that a lifetime of study was now going to be brought to bear on making Islam understandable to the world at large. And what you've done with that is um, you've taken the Quran and um, subsequent texts of Sarah and Hadith, and you've taken these big books and you've made small books for the masses. Yes. Can you tell us about yes. the, the uh, trilogy project, is it? Yes, it is. For most people, uh, they think that the Bible of Islam and the source of Islam is the Quran, and that Islam is the worship of Allah. Well, there is truth in that, but it is an incomplete truth, because you see, the Quran itself is incomplete. Uh, you cannot practice the religion of Islam and its five pillars based on what you find in the Quran. The information simply isn't there. So that's the first thing to understand is, is that the Quran does not under explain what all goes on in Islam. But the Quran does tell us where to find the missing information, if you will, uh, on, like, for instance, how to pray. So uh, it has no less than 91 verses which say that every Muslim must do everything exactly like Muhammad did it. And the reason that a Muslim knows how to do this is found in two sets of, two texts, if you will. One called the Sirah, which is nothing more than an extensive, detailed biography of Muhammad, some 800 pages long and fine print. And then his traditions, which range from a one-sentence, aphorisms to a page and a half and these are all events that Muhammad did or said something and so between uh, since we're supposed to be like Muhammad uh, we know exactly what Muhammad is like I like to say that we know more about Muhammad and his personal habits than we do those of George Washington uh, a United States reference now, of course, uh, yes, um, Muhammad has been written about in the Sarah and that his biography, and they go into such detail as to even how he uses the washroom, how he has sex, yes. which yes. is quite fascinating. Yes. So, well, it's absolutely astounding. As a matter of fact, the uh, Hadith give enough clues as to, appear, as a, as to his appearance that you can do a, sort of, uh, a pretty good sketch of what the man looked like. We know how tall he was, we know how he walked, we even know how he shook your hand, what color his eyes were. Oddly enough, there's debate over the color of his hair as to whether he used dye in it, whether he dyed his hair or not. But anyway, no, we know, we know an enormous amount about Muhammad. Uh, that's because, in essence, every Muslim is also a Muhammadan in that he does what Muhammad did. Now, Muslims will quickly object and say, oh, we do not worship Muhammad. I didn't say you did. I'm a Tennessean, and I don't worship Tennessee, although I'm quite fond of it. <laughs> 
That's what I was about to ask you, is that the, uh, it does seem contradictory that they would spend so much time talking about the man's personal habits and hygiene and the color of his hair. It does sound like rather an icon worship, and yet uh, Islam forbids iconetry and the worship of any man, only Allah. <laughs> so it does this sound rather true. hypocritical there. So your well, trilogy, uh, yeah, no, your, yeah, trilogy, your trilogy project took those books and put them in order. Can you explain yes. why that there was a confusion at first about the disorder of those books and what you've yes. done to make it more sensible? Yes. Uh, remember, I came to the Quran after a lifetime of studying other religions' foundational texts, Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Taoism. So uh, I had a reference, if you will, on world religion uh, that uh, I brought to the study of the Quran. And it was very, well, it's apparent to everybody that the Quran needs editing. Now, by editing, I don't mean we need to change a single word in a single verse or a single sentence. But it needs to be edited. It cries out for it. Uh, because anyone who picks up the Quran is, is, once they decide I'm going to read it, they become away very confused. And here is why they are confused. There is no story in the Quran. It's just like a pile of discordant subjects. So the reason there's no story in it is there is no timeline. And yet, obviously, there's references to history within it. So the first step in making the Quran readable is to put it in the right time order. Now, this is no stroke of genius on my part. Uh, this, the correct order of the Quran in terms of time has been known, oh, for 1,400 years. Uh, Briefly, the Quran you get at the bookstore is arranged in order of the chapters. The longest chapter is first, and the shortest chapter is last. Now, that rule is not ironclad, but it is in general true. So, it, here, here's the deal. If I gave you a mystery novel, but before I gave it to you, I cut the spine off, and then I rebound it and put the longest chapter at the first and the shortest chapter at the end and ranked them in order of length. I rebound the book, and I gave it to you, and I says, what a great novel. See what you think. Later you'd go, I couldn't read it. There was no plot. There was no development. There is no time. So what I did was to put the verses in the right time order, and since the Quran is so, so repetitive, I not only put the, ver the chapters in the right time order, but I grouped similar subjects. Hold on, I'm almost there. The last thing that I did was to integrate Muhammad's life, the Sirah, into the Quran. Now, I use different fonts, so you're never confused as to who's speaking, Muhammad or Allah. But you see, it is Muhammad that gives every verse in the Quran context. Because in almost every case, the Quran solves Muhammad's on-the-ground problems. So that's how I made the Quran readable. And I call my Quran a simple Quran, because the Quran in one of its verses declares that it is a simple Quran. So that's what I did to make the Quran readable. It now, my Quran, which is the other Quran just edited, starts off with a hymn to God and ends with political triumph over all creation. Well, let's take a break there, Dr. Warner, and when we come back from this short break, uh, let's talk about the yeah, politicization of Islam. Before, before we do, I want to make, sure. a, make a point on this. You say there's no story. That would make it unlike the Bible, wouldn't it, in, in, in Christian yes. folklore? It's more of a story. Quran, 
Go, go ahead. No, no, I'm just saying it's more written in a story format. As the Bible. A, as a, yes, yes, the Bible. My simple Quran is in a story format. Uh, but, so, and, and by the way, my Quran is quite readable. Mm-hmm. People can pick it up and read it and go, oh, this is what it's about. Well, that's interesting, because we have an interesting con- contrast coming up here from Penn and Teller on the Bible, just some comments. be interesting <laughs> to hear what you say when we come back in a couple yes. minutes, okay? Great. We'll be right back. Surely. you want history or fact in your Bible, <laughs> you are so screwed. It's fair to say that the Bible contains equal amounts of fact, history, and pizza. It's mythic storytelling and nothing more. Michael Shermer, publisher, Skeptic Magazine, director, the Skeptic Society. The more we learn about archaeology and history of biblical times, the more we realize that most of the stuff in the Bible is fiction. The best way to interpret the Bible is use the Bible. I'm Dr. Paul Meyer, professor of ancient history at Western Michigan University. There are many, many historical, reliable passages in the Bible which should be credited and not simply uh, flushed away as is often the case. It's an article of faith. It's part of a religious belief system that really doesn't fit the way we think when we think scientifically and we live in the age of science where we're supposed to ask for evidence and challenge beliefs. not to write on the walls. No one will give me any paper. I thought we agreed that you weren't going to write at all. That you needed to rest. No, I don't need to rest. I need to tell my stories. You were doing so well, Benny. Making real progress. We were all so proud of you. I I need to go home. I don't belong here. We're going to send you home as soon as you're well. I'm fine. You're not fine. People who are fine don't write on walls. Get me a typewriter. You're not listening. The stories have got to stop, Benny. They are too dangerous. But too dangerous to whom? To you. This world you've created, this deep space nine, Captain Sisko and Kira and the others, none of it is real. All it is to me. If I don't finish my story, if, if Captain Sisko doesn't open the ore box, then he cannot contact the pockets. It doesn't matter, Benny. The prophets don't exist. They're all figments of your imagination. Get rid of them. It's the only way that you're going to get well. Now give me the pencil back. my story. It's over. Just let it go. In Nashville, Tennessee, talking about his trilogy project of reconfiguring and re-editing the Quran, the Sirah, and Hadith. Now, Dr. Warner, I have your books. Now, could you tell our listeners where they may pick up copies as well? Surely. Uh, we can go to Amazon, uh, and but I also have a website, politicalislam.com. Politicalislam.com, and they can purchase the books there. Yes. Excellent. Mm-hmm. And one of them is called A Simple Quran, The Reconstructed Historical Quran. The other is mm-hmm. Muhammad and the Unbelievers, The yes. Sirah, A Political Biography. And volume two is The Political Traditions of Muhammad, The Hadith for the Unbelievers. I look yes. forward to reading those. Now, can we get into some of the presentation you gave to us on Sunday, and I understand that it is online as well. Your presentation was videotaped and put onto YouTube, and it's pretty much gone viral. I think it's been watched over 130,000 times, something like that. Um, In it, 
you show that the traditional Western view of the Middle Age, of the Dark Ages, and the fall of the Byzantine Empire, and the, the uh, history of the Mediterranean Sea is not told in its true light of Islam. Can you expand on that? Surely. Uh, I've already told you that I have an interest in the effects of religion on history, so this led me to an interest in the Middle Ages, the medieval periods, and in particular, the Dark Ages. Now, I was always dissatisfied with the classical explanations of the Dark Ages. They just didn't seem to line up to me. That, but, but it was mostly intuitive. I'm also a, I won't say that I'm a historian, but I am a reader of history. And then when I became really aware of the Sarah, the life of Muhammad, and then what his life caused the men who came immediately after him, the four rightly guided caliphs, they basically hollowed out the heart of the Byzantine Empire. And yet when I read history, I'm told that the Byzantine Empire fell. Basically, its fall started with the invasion of the German tribes. Well, this never made sense to me, uh, because it was very clear that Islam, Islamic Jihad, had crushed the um, Middle East and Egypt and North Africa. But this was just an aside. I never, it was just something I set to the side until I ran across a history book which uh, called The Rise of the European Economy, A.D. 300 to 900. Uh, certainly a boring title if you've ever heard one. But in the back, there was some fascinating trans there was some fascinating translations of ancient documents and in these ancient documents was what i had always intuitively knew existed these were references to battles battles that had not occurred before in any history book only in the forgotten history and so this set me on a task of putting together a catalog of all the battles that Islam fought against the classical world, that is, the Byzantine Empire, and then in particular Europe. And I created a database of some 548 battles that Islam fought against the classical world and Europe. So this was astounding because uh, I put them together in a dynamic battle map so that you could see these battles unfold over time. And it is, I mean, they say a picture's worth a thousand words. Well, in this case, one picture's worth a thousand history books because everyone who sits and watches these battles unfold over 1,200 years that's collapsed to two minutes is stunned. It is so graphically clear that Islam attacked the Europe and how that attack went down and also how much of the brutality there was. So... That's sort of the thrust of the uh, talk, now, why we are afraid. Now, I had the opportunity to watch that that slideshow that you gave on the weekend there, and it was astounding. Now, you say these references to battles, they don't have a historical source? Are you saying they all came from... No, no, they have a historical oh. source. Uh, but what I mean is, you don't find them in history books. Okay, so... Uh, that's all I mean. So you're... That you, if you look in a history book about the battles between Islam and uh, Europe... You'll find about five battles, and that's about all. And why would the so, normal, uh, why would the regular history books have overlooked them? Is now there a reason? you've touched upon a most interesting question, sir, because you've now pointed to our denial of Islamic history 
and our denial of Islamic doctrine. You've called the history of the Battle of Islam in Europe a history of losers, us yes. being the losers. Yes. So it quite People seems... People are fond of telling... <laughs> yeah, it's quite natural for us to gloss over that history, isn't it? Yes. I mean, it's like somebody, somebody who goes to a casino and comes back and brags about how he lost all of his money. Nah. When they come back from a casino, they only brag when they win. Yes. Nobody brags about being a loser. How many battles did you find in those um, footnotes? 548. And okay. by the way, these are not remotely all of them. Uh, this video, which is on YouTube, uh, it has been criticized by some Hindus, for instance, about how my battle maps don't include all the battles in, in Hindustan or India. I wrote back and I said, I completely agree with you. But I just became exhausted <laughs> after cataloging 548 of them, and I just said, that's enough to prove a point. Yeah, leave that for somebody else to do about the battles Well, actually, of uh, these Hindus said, well, if we drew together a list of the location and dates, would you put them on? I said, surely. Oh. Now, if we can only find an African who would do the same for Africa and someone who would do it for the Silk Route, we'd have a really... I suspect there's at least a 1,000. A thousand I've battles. Catalog five hundred forty-eight. Con contrast that to the crusades that we always hear about that ah. we should be ashamed <laughs> about because of our crusading past. How many crusades battles were there? Offensive battles. There were fourteen of them. Fourteen now, versus over a thousand. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. So, and the, the, the crusades lasted for three hundred years. Mm -hmm. They ended eight hundred years ago. The battles. Even the ones where I call them offensive because they left Europe and attacked uh, were, in truth, part of a defensive strategy. People forget the Middle East was Christian. Hello? Even Iraq. Jerusalem was Christian. Right. So when the Christians left Europe to go to Jerusalem, they did so at the behest of the Christians who were suffering. 30,000 Christians, uh, 30,000 churches had been destroyed. Uh, living with Muslims as a Christian is not a peaceful, kind process. So the, the Crusades were defensive. Now, you've also come out with um, quite a statement uh, on Sunday. You said, Muhammad, as an historical figure, does not exist. Well, that's a statement of fact. So, I mean, are you suggesting no that, he didn't, that he didn't live at all? No, 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 no. Listen carefully. I didn't say Muhammad didn't exist. Mm -hmm. I said Muhammad as a historical figure. Mm -hmm. By that I mean there is not a slip of paper or papyrus anywhere that exists that was in a country outside of Arabia that refers to Muhammad. In other words, uh, the Byzantines didn't do any business with Muhammad, nor do they have any record. There were no newspapers, if you will, of the day who recorded his life. Now, the people who followed him enter into history. But Muhammad himself, there's not a scrap of paper anywhere that shows he existed outside of Arabia. All the evidence that we have for Muhammad comes from internal documents, Islamic documents. So there's no documents outside of Islam that ever refer to Muhammad what can we during infer his from lifetime. That? What can we infer from that? Well, now, now that I'm going into speculation, mm -hmm. my, uh, well, first off, let's address the material we do have, the Hadith, his traditions, and the Sirah. When you read the Sirah, as a historical document, it's a joke. I don't mean that it's funny. As a matter of fact, it's tragic in its implications. But as a historical document, it was written down 200 years after his death. 
and yet it purports to give us what clothing he wore and the exact speech he gave and what was said back to him. I mean, it is obviously, I think there is a line of that a man existed, and he did some of these things, but there are just simply too many details to be true. I'm going to tell you the law of storytelling. The more a story is told, the better it gets. <laughs> is that not true? That's good. Yeah, yes. Every time I watch a rerun, I like it better than the last time. <laughs> <laughs> but but, but as you, I grew up, I, I am... I am so old that I grew up before television. I grew up basically in a very, very isolated rural area, okay? I didn't have running water until I went off to college. And as a result, we passed time uh, on the store porch, which was the community center, telling stories and playing checkers. So I, was gr- I grew up in the world of storytelling. And I can tell you, the, be- <laughs> the more the details, the better the story. But it also means it's a later version of the story, usually because you've, shall we say, enhanced it, made it even more entertaining. <laughs> now, I understand, the the, shows that. I understand the Quran as well. The very first Quran wasn't written until um, 200 years after Muhammad's death, and then be- prior to that it was now, all verbal. This is a fascinating area to deal in, because with, uh, my book that I sell, I call it a reconstructed Quran. Let's be clear, the Quran you get at the mosque and at the bookstore is not the Quran of Muhammad. It is not. It is the Quran of it is the Quran of Uthman, who is the fourth caliph, and he was the one who called in all the known scraps of the Quran, bits and pieces and books and manuscripts, and put them under the charge of an editorial committee who produced the Quran that we have today. They're the ones who put the longest chapter at the first all the way down to the shortest chapter. And Muhammad is long since dead when this is done. Now listen carefully. After they produced the new authoritative approved edition of the Quran, they took all of the source documents and they burned them. Is that right? This now, has someone... why would anybody burn the source documents? because they didn't agree with each other. Mm-hmm. This sounds so much and has so many parallels to the Christian tradition and the Bible and the Council of Nicaea, who crafted the Bible out of many Gospels, not all of which made it into the Bible. Mm-hmm. And uh, also the fact that there is no um, original text of the Bible, from my understanding, in the original uh, language. That's all the, the Greek, if, if I'm not mistaken. You're probably much more versed on that than I am. Well... I, I like to restrict my comments uh, to Islam, and I, I don't like to get too much off into Christianity or anything else, uh, because I have a reason for doing this. I find that in my discussions, particularly if I'm, uh, shall we say, discussing the topic of Islam with a progressive or a liberal, the first thing they want to do is jump over to how bad Christianity is. And I always say to him, could we not restrict our discussion to Islam? We've all heard your arguments about Christianity. Let's discuss a topic we're not so familiar with and can learn something about. So uh, I'd like to stay with Islam. Uh, but the Islamic Quran shows obvious editing by its creators. And the, and the part about burning the source documents, uh, I don't know that there's any... I'll tell you, 
You know who burns most of the source documents of Christianity was Islam. Let me point this out to you. When Islam invaded the Middle East out of Arabia, Syria was the intellectual powerhouse of the day, along with Alexandria, Egypt. There were many different, if we will, sacred texts and gospels that were in existence in the Christian world at that time. The, when Islam invaded the Middle East, they annihilated whole forms of Christianity. Let me give you an example. Nestorian Christianity was very different from the Christianity that we know in this world today. The Silk Route was half Nestorian Christian. The Nestorian Church, centered in Baghdad, had uh, missionaries in the court of China. The Nestorian Church was annihilated by Islam. There were many different forms of Christianity, many different views of Jesus in that day. They were all annihilated. What we see as Christianity today is the bloody stump of the original Christianity. A fascinating perspective, Dr. Warner. We're going to take a break here at the bottom of the hour for another couple of clips and some uh, promotions. Um, if you could stay with us, we'll be back in a few oh, minutes. Yes. Okay. I mean, we're talking about my favorite subject. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back right after this. Certainly. Evie. Good God. I'm sorry. I didn't know where else to go. Yes, well, you better come inside before someone sees you. Cheers. Gordon, I know every cop in this country is looking for me. I know it's horrible for me to come here to put you in this situation. Evie. If they find me here, you could be in terrible trouble. Evie, listen to me. If the government ever searched my house, you would be the least of my problems. You trusted me. It would be terrible manners for me not to trust you. Oh, my God. That's God Save the Queen my parents took me to when they hung it at Gallery 12. I thought Sutler had it destroyed. He believes he did. It cost me more than this house. But no matter how bad I feel, it always cheers me up. What is that? It's a copy of the Quran. 14th century. Are you a Muslim? No, I'm in television. <laughs> but why would you keep it? I don't have to be Muslim to find the images beautiful or its poetry moving. But is it worth it? I mean, if they found that here. I told you, you'd be the least of my worries. Thank you, Gordon. Christians have been permitted to enter the library since it was stormed. It is a provocation! <laughs> Allow me to suggest, if you consider your presence so essential, why not let yourself be baptized? <laughs> the majority of us here, beginning with our prefect, have accepted Christ. Why not the rest of you? It's only a matter of time and you know it. Really? It is just a matter of time. Well, excuse me, honoured member, but as far as I am aware, your God has not yet proved himself to be more just or more merciful than his predecessors. Lady. Is it really just a question of time before I accept your faith? Why then? 
should this assembly accept the counsel of someone who admittedly believes in absolutely nothing? I believe in philosophy. Philosophy? Just what you need in times like these. <laughs> Enough! And welcome back. <clears throat> We're on the line with Dr. Bill Warner from Tennessee, who has uh, been giving us a rather reinstruction of some history. Isn't that correct, Bill? <laughs> you know, you, you made an interesting point on the weekend where you revealed that under, under Rome itself, the Mediterranean civilization, as you referred to it, that whole area around the Mediterranean Sea, was essentially mm -hmm. free of war, and you had some interesting yes. ev evidence to support that and what happened after um, when, when it became more of an Islamic situation. Well, there was the, what do they call it? I don't know how to say the Latin pox, something or another, the peace of Rome. But uh, Rome, as did other empires, had a great deal to gain from good communications and transportation that were done freely without hindrance. Uh, Rome was dedicated to be not only being a military empire, but an economic empire. And so therefore, just like America and Canada today, you want the transportation system such that you're not going to get hijacked on the way. And this was the case in the Mediterranean Sea. There was a, there were no, put it another way, there was no piracy in the Mediterranean under Rome's rule. Uh, they got rid of the pirates for the same reason that any civilized nation would like to do that. They're just roadside robbers in a boat. So anyway, the, as a result, the Mediterranean was the transportation and communication link of all the classical world. Uh, figures are that it took 10 days to sail a ship loaded with grain from Alexandria, Egypt, and Egypt was the breadbasket of the Mediterranean, to Rome. That's 10 days' time. If you wanted to hoof it, it'd take you 140 days to get from Alexandria to Rome. So the Mediterranean made transportation quick, and it also made it cheap. It uh, cost, uh, you could go all the way with grain from Alexandria to Rome for the same price it took to haul it 75 miles in an ox cart. So the Mediterranean was the airways and the interstate highways. I don't know if you all use that term in Canada, but anyway, uh, it was the transportation system of the entire Mediterranean world. Uh, this was so important that the world was really a Mediterranean world. That's the reason they use that term. For instance, Egypt was not part of Africa as much as it was part of the Mediterranean civilization. And the reason for this is obviously Egypt is on the African continent, but there was no communication uh, between, not much communication between Egypt and, say, Nigeria, uh, because it was difficult uh, to get there. It took a long time. So it was a Mediterranean-centered world, and what's important is when Islam came about, it became a Islamic world, and only Muslims were allowed to freely trade. The trade, in, uh, measured by archaeological evidence, the, trade, the amount of sailing that Europeans did decreased by 80%, which is a massive reduction. I mean, if we took the town you're in and reduced all the incoming traffic by planes, boats, and trucks by 80%, you would have a massive economic collapse. You would have a local dark age. 
it almost seems as if you could use these lessons of that period to teach a few things to today's environmentalists and other people who who, who are still telling us it's it's cheaper to do things locally, whereas it's cheaper to carry something across the whole Mediterranean than it is just to take it 75 miles away by land kind of thing. And there, this issue of trade... Um, I understand from what we heard uh, from you on the weekend, too, is that North Africa used to be green uh, yes, before Islam. Yes, and, and we there were even is told, an environmental uh, collapse. Yeah, and we were even told that armies at the time used to ride for days in the shade in the northern yes, parts of Africa. this is all true. So what no, happened? The, uh, Islam changed the actual uh, eco-climate of North Africa because their expansion murdered so many people and that there were fewer people around to tend to the business of it was a it was an irrigated cropland so irrigation requires constant care it also requires a central government because no one farmer is can on his own maintain an irrigation system so once islamic jihad penetrated north africa and caused the central governments to collapse the method of maintaining the irrigation systems collapsed in addition the Christians were farmers. The invading Muslims were herders. The average Muslim family would have 50 goats. Well, it turns out that the goats, the Muslim goats, if you will, if we can refer, the Muslim-owned goats, uh, could graze in the Christian cornfields because under Sharia law, uh, a, an Islamic goat has more civil rights than a Christian. So as a result... The goats ate the green. The irrigation was not there. This combination actually produced a layer of silt, which is observable in North African harbors. So the invasion of Islam created an ecological collapse. Is, is, oh, let me, let's, let's talk briefly about the part about the military roads, sure. uh, because I love this. It shows the ingenuity of, of the Romans. The roads... It's hot there, so they planned, they, when they made their roads, and Roman roads, of course, are famous um, as a way to project power and for trade, they planted olive trees on both sides of the roads, which produced shade and food, but they also produced the maintenance of the roads. This is so clever. The Romans would lease a mile of road to an individual, and the individual got to take care of the olive trees, and he got the harvest of the trees, which would keep him alive as a farmer. He, in turn, did the maintenance on the road. So Roman roads were self-maintaining. I think that's so clever. Well, amazing. <laughs> I mean, contracted out street keeping <laughs> 2,000 years ago. Uh, um, I'm very curious. Is there something basic in the ideology of Islam that, that's anti-trade in some way? Oh, not anti-trade. Not at all. Well, uh, how would you, uh, how would you say a, it? Well, Muhammad was a merchant. Okay, so, so why, why so much restriction on trade during their reign? Oh, there was no restriction on Muslim trade. It was the restriction on Christian trade. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, oh, no, no. And the yet, Muslim trade, boom. And yet there is no evidence, you say, of that much trade, like that you don't have the evidence of that trade like you did with the... Oh, with no, the, you, do for, uh, you do for Muslim trade, but you don't have evidence of Christian trade. Okay. okay. So we need to distinguish here. Gotcha. I think there's uh, something to be found in the fact that in jihad in 2001 what was attacked the world trade center trade center yes no no because ec as much as possible muhammad practiced economic jihad so if a muslim pirate could capture a christian ship they got a ship 
they got the grain or treasure that was on the ship, and they also got the Christians because they were a commodity. Over a million Europeans were taken into slavery during this period. So uh, capturing a ship, it meant that you got everything. You got the people on board as slaves, and you got the treasure, and you also still have the ship. So being a pirate was a very profitable piece of business. This is the historical background to the Somali pirates. Now, what would you define as the distinguishing characteristic then between Muslim trade and Christian trade in terms of having created these dark ages or this this lack of mm-hmm. prosperity that existed before? I mean, if you've got two forms of trade, what makes one different than the other, other than the... Than the um, exclusivity of it, let's put it that way. Is well, that all it you have takes? To well, the pur- it is the purpose of Islam to annihilate all other civilizations through the process of jihad. Jihad manifests itself, according to the Quran, in four forms. The jihad of the sword, the economic jihad, that is, Muslims are to contribute to jihad, and then there's the jihad of the mouth and the pen. So jihad exists in many forms, but it is always against the non-believer, the kafir. Uh, Muhammad came to wealth because of jihad. Uh, As a matter of fact, this is interesting, before he became the prophet of Allah, he was an honest businessman. After he became the prophet of Allah, the money that he got came from jihad, that is, theft from the non-believers, the kafirs. So he himself establish this process of gaining wealth through theft and enslavement. When Muhammad sold the Jews, uh, the third tribe of Jews in uh, Medina after he captured the women, that money did not go into his pocket. That money from the sale of slaves went into buying horses, swords, and armor for more jihad. Interesting. You know, history seems to be rewritten. We're going to take a quick break now. And what we're going to hear, Bill, initially is from an old uh, broadcast of Politically Incorrect with Bill Maher that was uh, aired just a month after 9-11. And on that show, he had a group of uh, Islamic students who had their own interpretations of of Islam and the situation they're in. Oh, let's listen to this. This yeah, will be good. We'll hear this, and we'll be interested in your comments when we return Surely. on the other side in about three and a half minutes. Okay? Right, right. after this. The country. You don't change the lives of children by killing but them. What the United said States about the can support democratization patterns in the Middle East. The United States can stop supporting presidents and calling them democratic or kings, for that matter, such as Morocco's or Saudi Arabia's. But the irony, but the irony, you, I hear all this all the time, that you blame us for Not your blaming. corrupt leaders. I understand that the Western powers did have a hand yeah. in putting them and on the throne. Supported. But that was a hundred no, years ago. We all saw that. That was 30 years ago. I don't believe we're propping up Saddam Hussein. I believe we tried to kick him out. We just didn't finish the job. I tried to kick him out. That was an incompetent job by George Bush Sr. and by Bill Clinton. We've been letting these guys run around these countries for the last 12 years because of our incompetent foreign policies. We've been letting the Taliban have his way in Afghanistan. And what we need to do is take these guys out and bring prosperity and education because that's what's going to help these countries. 
But you why embrace these people? Why is it the United States' fault? Because, because the, the Soviets trained them and we gave them the money to build these yeah, autocratic totalitarian regimes. Well, the United States' the United States', is, the United States is fault is the fact that when somebody does something bad to us, we say we're going to sanction them or we're going to bomb them, but we're not going to embrace them. The reason why we need to build Afghanistan now is because we need to embrace them. We need to give them Western thought. We need to build the, an economy there and bring education. But the fact that, that, that there are no democracies, the fact that there is no freedom of speech, the fact that these countries live under these fear and these up, despots, that's all the fault of the United well, States. Bill, look, look at, you know, we Bill, lived under a despot too. We kicked them out. We did it on our own. Don't you have to take some personal responsibility for your own? I never hear that. I rarely hear that from Muslims. I would love to get to the point where the Muslim world can be self-critical. But as an activist who is trying to work with Muslims and with the Muslim world, that's not going to happen as long as people like Osama bin Laden can exploit the legitimate sentiments of Muslims, including Palestine, Kashmir, and Iraq. I have to take a break. That's a very good point. Were you responding to my demand for better quarters? There are none better. I suggest you make do with these. You suggest? There are no more available, but if that's the only way you can get gratification, I'll arrange to have the whole room filled from floor to ceiling with breakable objects. I will not be humiliated. Then act in a civilized fashion. I did not give you permission to leave. I didn't ask for any. Captain, I wish to contact my government. I cannot fulfill my mission. It would be an insult to our ruler to bring this incorrigible monster as a bride. This is supposed to be a peaceful mission. There cannot be peace between us. We have deluded ourselves. Captain, when I am near them, I do not want peace. I want to kill them. You're as bad as she is. It's not required that you like each other, just do your jobs. The job? The job is impossible. We cannot make peace with, with people we detest. Stop trying to kill each other. Then worry about being friendly. But if she won't listen to then me... make her listen, Ambassador. Use a different approach. Stop being so diplomatic. She respects strength. Go in strong. <laughs> I wonder if we can ask a question of Dr. Warner here about um, sure. uh, Altakia. Yes. Uh, what, was, what is the Altakia, and would that be why you went right direct to the uh, source material for your studies? Yes. Uh, there are, in Islamic doctrine, if you will, four forms of lying. Uh, Kitman, Maruna, Takia, and another one. But what has happened is, in, if you will, the enlightened <laughs> splinter culture of those who know Islam, in general, all forms of deception have been labeled taqiyya. Uh, if we could only have a society which could appreciate all the different forms of it, that would be good, but it's hard enough to introduce people into the concept of sacred deception. And Muhammad repeatedly... Now remember, Muhammad is the perfect Muslim. Muhammad has no error. 
Muhammad is the divine human prototype, okay? And he repeatedly gave the advice to Muslims to use deception, lies, if you will. As a matter of fact, the shortest, the shortest hadith is, war is deception, okay? Mm-hmm. So he repeatedly told Muslims to deceive the kafir, the unbeliever, if it would advance Islam. A Muslim is not to lie for personal gain, but lying to advance Islam is advocated and is part of the Sunnah of Muhammad. So, in other words, if you want to find out about Islam, you may get the truth by asking a Muslim. You may not, because he's practicing taqiyya, which means yes. deceive the unbelievers, the kafirs. So, but I think now here's this: mm-hmm. we have to understand this. There are two doctrines of Islam. There's the early religious doctrine found in Mecca, and the later jihad political doctrine found in Medina. So we have two sets of truth, if you will, a religious truth of peace and a political truth of war called jihad. What I say is this. When you ask a Muslim about Islam, he may only tell you half of the story. Mm -hmm. That's half may be true, but it is incomplete. I have testified in American courts as an expert witness. You take an oath to tell the whole truth, okay? That is, half of a truth is frequently a lie. So that's almost... So what happens when you talk to the average Muslim is, he tells you the half of Islam mm-hmm. that he knows you want to hear, the religion of peace. So in other words, okay. uh, to bring it home, uh, with the Gaza conflict today, for example, I'm going to editorialize here, uh, we hear about the uh, Israeli bombing of Gaza and all their uh, suffering, and yet we don't hear about the 1,800 Qassam rockets that were fired into no. Israel over the last years, couple of years. Yeah. So we have our own form of dualism, if you will, in the uh, reporting world, or at least the reporting of only half-truths. Uh-huh. Right. Now... So. Part of, part of your presentation on Sunday, you mentioned, well, it's a history of losers, us being the losers when it comes to right. Islam, uh, which sounds rather depressing to tell you the truth, Bill, but you, you likened the, the, the mindset of Westerners to that yes. of a traumatized woman or a victim yes. of assault. Can you tell us yes. about that a- analysis? Well, first off, we have to face something here. The general intellectual climate in America is that almost no one knows anything about Islam, its doctrine. Uh, now, what they get is from the pop culture press thing, which, well, Islam is a religion of peace, and if we treat them right, they treat us right. <laughs> that's, that's about all they know. Right. Uh, well, <laughs> so, and I actually asked the question again. I must confess I briefly lost the point I was headed to. <laughs> Sorry. That, no, no, it was quite all right. That, you were, that, that tongue-in-cheek thing was pretty good. Um, no, we were saying about the traumatized woman, and that seems yes, to be yes, the yes, mentality yes, 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 yes. of Western so anyway, society today. How do we make sense of the fact that when I talk to scholars about Islam, they, be, unless they're, quote, if they're liberal or progressive, they become angry. I mean, they start insulting me. They say, oh, you're just a bigot. You're just an Islamophobe. That is not a rational discourse. That's not rational discussion. And so I realized that, first off, in America, we have massive ignorance about Islam. We have massive ignorance about the doctrine. We have massive ignorance. I even call it professional ignorance. How do we explain the fact that there is this subject which we will not touch, which we're in a constant state of denial about? 
We're not thinking critically here. And so I just made the chance remark to my wife one night that it is though that all of these 1,400 years of brutality has produced in our society, our civilization, the same kind of mind that we find in the beaten wife. And so anyway, uh, my wife is an expert researcher on the Internet, and she produced something from the YWCA Rape and Sexual Counseling Handbook. And I was stunned because all of the psychological attitudes of the beaten woman and the beating husband were found within our civilization and Islam. It was like astounding how we exist in a state of denial, how we are ashamed of our history. In America, we will freely teach you the history of the evil white man on his wooden ship trading slaves from Africa, but we will not mention, nor you may not mention, that the man who sold those slaves to the white man was a Muslim, and that this slave trade had gone on forever. You're not allowed to talk about that. You can't talk about the fact that a million Europeans were put into slavery. You can't talk about Hindu slavery. Well, wait a minute. If you just have this constant denial of facts, you have to ask yourself the question, well, wait a minute. What determines an acceptable fact and an unacceptable fact? And the unacceptable facts all come from Islam. So anyway, I say that 1,400 years of brutality has produced a climate of fear, a climate of dread, and a climate of almost depression and anger about this whole thing. So a person such as myself, when I stand up and present facts, what people say to me is, you are a bigot, you are a hater. I just told you a fact that you are a hater. Mm -hmm. So the only response from people about Islam is not rational, and so I wanted to explain the irrationality, and I claim this irrationality is rooted in our loss to Islam and our fear of Islam. We don't think clearly. So it sounds as if the loss to the Islamic hordes, as you could put them mm -hmm. for the over 1,400 years, is, is more or less our own fault. We have a failing here in the Western society, and that is an internalized guilt over some of our yes. actions. Yes, this, you, you, you've hit exactly the point. How in the uh, world can we win this war if we have that? Hmm? How in the world can we win a war against jihad, who, who, who makes no holes barred about mm -hmm. total destruction of the West, when mm -hmm. we ourselves deny that we're, we're even in a war? Oh, well, listen. <laughs> the two great lies of George Bush were, one, Islam is the religion of peace, and the other, the biggest lie of all, the biggest lie of our era is war on terror. What? B.S. <laughs> I'd use stronger language, except we're in the public ear here. Yes. I mean, it's a load of crap. Uh -huh. There is no such thing as a war on terror. No, 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 no. <laughs> Sun Zhu in his Art of War says you need to know yourself, and you need to know your enemy. Well, we don't know ourselves, we don't know our own history, and we deny that the enemy has anything to be known about him because, oh gosh, he's just like us. So therefore, we don't need to investigate who he is if he's just like us. So we are laboring under the lie of there is no enemy. And yet for 14, 270 million people have died in jihad over 1,400 years, and that fact is not allowed to be discussed or 
it, it can't be utilized in public discussion. million people. Compare that, for example. Now, mind you, you're talking a longer term here, yes, 1,400 yes, yes. years. But compare that to the uh, 6 million Jews killed in Auschwitz or, or, or the concentration camps, the, the 40-odd million killed by communism. They pale yes. in comparison to yes. the deaths perpetrated by yes. jihad. And why can we talk about those? We have created a class of death that may not be discussed, and this is part of our traumatized mind. No, you can't talk about all those dead. And by the way, the dead are Hindus, Buddhists, Christians, Jews, Zoroastrians, and Africans. And Muslims. So, but yet, we can't talk about it. That's the reason I came up with this concept of the molested mind, because I know from some experience that the beaten wife never wants to talk about this. And so that's how we're like. How many We're basically uh, psychotic on this issue? Yes, we've I, been so traumatized. I agree. How many people have died since nine eleven in this jihad? Uh, I think over nineteen thousand since nine eleven. Since nine eleven, nineteen thousand people. And yet, in the new media in America, it is not one tenth of one percent of those are discussed. Not even Christians will admit that Christians die. I published something called the Bulletin of Christian Persecution. That has been called hate literature. The fact that I report the death of a Nigerian Christian, I'm told, Bill, you're a hater. You're a bigot. But I just told you that a Christian died. You can't talk about that. We have ourselves to blame. We're nuts. We have ourselves to blame. You're right. We're nuts. We're nuts we're to not. deny this. Now, we only have a minute left. Can you tell um, our listeners where, again, you can uh, get yes. your books and uh, watch yes. your go uh, my, presentation? Go to, go to my website, politicalislam.com, mm -hmm. and uh, you can buy books, you can read newsletters, but you can also um, subscribe to two bulletins that I produce, the Bulletin of the Persecution of Christians and the Bulletin of the Oppression of Women. Uh, we're, the only no, that's not, we're the only people who keep up with all the murder. No, we're not the only ones. But we do, we're part of the people on the cutting edge mm -hmm. of knowledge about the suffering caused by Islam. I, Dr. Warner, I, I really appreciate you joining us from Nashville, Tennessee today. I found your, um, your talk and your presentation. Again, we can be found out online on YouTube. Just type in Bill Warner in YouTube and you'll hit it. Believe me. Oh, and, yeah. And, by the uh, way. Yes, sir. Briefly, it has been subtitled now in 15 languages, including oh. Turkish, Arabic, uh, uh, French, Spanish, Portuguese, Swedish, Romanian, Czech, Slovak. That's fascinating. Isn't that amazing? It is absolutely <laughs> amazing. amazing. <laughs> You've really started something, and now we have to end something, and that's the show for another week. Thanks, Bill. Oh, I'll join you again sometime. Take care. Thank you so much. Yeah. Join you, us again bye next bye. week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, you know what to do. Be right back here. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. Laughing news of the past, present, and future now continues with the news of the past. That's in the past, you know. <laughs> now here's... Um... Damn. Yeah. <laughs> 1703. On returning to Moscow from the honeymoon, the Tsar and his bride announced their immediate separation. The couple refused to discuss the honeymoon, but it was noted that he referred to her as Catherine the Great, while she called him Ivan the Terrible. <laughs> but it was noted that he referred to her as Catherine the Great, while she called him Ivan the Terrible. <laughs> <laughs>